Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Athletic Performance at GWS Giants in the AFL, David Joyce. So this episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Vald Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. If you do want any more information, you can go over to Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. So today we've got part two with David Joyce, who is now the head of athletic performance at GWS Giants in the AFL. So we spoke to David probably about 18 months ago discussing high-performance training for sports. So David's got his second book out, which as he mentioned in the episode, which was supposed to be his first, which is Sports Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation, which he's co-authored with Dan Lewinden again. So we discussed the book uh, in quite a lot of depth. So I wanted to kind of guide the discussion around the chapters that David wrote himself and the process he goes through to actually write them chapters. So the chapters that we go through are the injury risk profile process and the athletic foot and ankle and pain and performance. So really three really interesting subjects that that David gets into uh, quite a lot of depth with and uh, and the process he went through with, with writing them. So just before we get on to the chat with David, just want to say a massive thanks to Train With Push, who are sponsoring the podcast again. So Train With Push have got some some nice developments in the pipeline. So just over Christmas, things were added to the the Push app. So new exercises are added all the time. As I mentioned in the previous episode before Christmas, they've also got a validation study, which I have put a link to on paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 66. So there's also some really exciting uh, things coming up with Push over 2016. So they've got a newly designed Push app, which I know has been in the pipeline for a while, but that will get released uh, reasonably shortly. They've got a newly designed Push portal, just to make it easier for athletes, uh, for, for coaches to track athletes and make it more user-friendly, which will be absolutely superb. And they've got a the first of its kind partnership with an NFL franchise, which is gonna be a really exciting um, prospect for Push. And I'm sure that'll get a, a lot of um, a lot of people th- uh, noticing what push are doing um, and how it can be used by coaches uh, for, for for tracking their athletes. So big thanks to push, big thanks to Val Performance and the Nordboard for also sponsoring the podcast. Um, don't forget that gets released on the 15th of January. So if you are interested, get over to valperformance.co.uk and drop them an email. So I hope you enjoy the chat with David and I will speak to you soon. So 
Today, we have David Joyce on the Pace of Performance podcast. So before we get going and give him a little short introduction, just want to thank him for his time to, um, to come on the podcast in between Christmas and New Year. I know he's got plenty going on. So firstly, welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Happy Christmas. You too, mate. You too. So you came on um, probably, wow, um, 18 months ago. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. So it was probably just after the podcast got started, so it was right, yeah, yeah, 18 months ago. So a few things have changed in your um, in your employment department and new book out, which we're going to discuss. Yeah. Yeah. So ju- just for anyone, for just in case anyone didn't check out the, um, the first installment uh, with yourself or haven't uh, come across you before, do you just want to give us a little bit of a, a background on yourself? Yeah, um, I'm the head of athletic performance at, at GWS Giants, which is a team in the AFL. Um, I know you've had a couple of people from the AFL on in the past, uh, Mackers and, and Burjo and the like. So yeah. um, we're in direct competition with them. And um, so we're, we're, we're based here in Sydney at, at Sydney, Sydney Olympic Park. We're one of the new teams or newish teams in the in the AFL, so um, one of two teams in Sydney. And um, I took the opportunity. I was, I was asked by the AFL if I would be interested in in this job about oh, just over twelve months ago now. Um, and as hard as it was to leave Western Force, where I was in Perth, it was an opportunity for me to get a little bit closer to the home because my my family are on the eastern seaboard of Australia, and um, it's it's a Magnificent footy club. It's an f- absolutely fantastic footy club, full of great people and um, a really great role for me. So um, I ended up by taking the, the role about 12 months ago, um, and and here we are. And in the meantime, obviously we've um, we've we've just published the the new book, which is sports injury prevention and and rehabilitation, and that came out last week. I think I haven't even got a copy myself yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it has been released, and, and people around the world are starting to get it um, through their letterbox and, and underneath their Christmas tree, which which is always good. So that's about the last 18 months. Oh, and I got engaged on Christmas Day as well, so there's, there's been some some uh, shifts both personally and, pro- and, and professionally with me, Rob. What, four, day, four days ago, you mean? Oh, Christmas Day, yeah. Nice. Yep. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Really happy. Good, good. So was it, was it a romantic gesture? Um, probably about as romantic as I get. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. No worries. Um, so just, just before we get into the book, um, Head of Athletic Performance, do you just want to give us a little bit of detail on, on what that entails uh, over there in the AFL? Yeah, my role really is well. My life's mantra is to to make other people great. So what what my role is is to to um, work with the head coach and work with my team, the athletic performance unit at GWS, um, to to make the players great and to make their dreams come true, which is to win an AFL premiership. Um, but broadly, on top of that, is my role is to make the people in my APU great as well. So I've got. Um, a pretty big um, staff. I've got um, sports science, sports medicine, strength and conditioning, recovery, nutrition, um, psychology, um, a bunch of interns as well, fast track traineeship, and um, so I've, I've got a I've got a, a team of 
about well just in excess of 20 when you when you count all the the part-timers as well so um i suppose what happens is the head coach says we want to play in this this style and this is these are the these are the players we've got and it's it's my job to work with our team to to get them as physically robust and and dominant as we can and um to be able to um, get them to spend more time with the coaches because that's the thing which makes teams great. Mm-hmm. So just just linking the two, um, you obviously your role and the, and the book itself. I think without without me looking on your Twitter profile, I, I always assume that you are an SNC coach, um, but you've got a, your background in in rehab as well. Is that yeah? Is that right? Um, yeah, so I, I'm both really. My, my okay. first degree was in, in physiotherapy um, way back in the day when TV was in black and white. So I um, um, did a, a Bachelor of Physio at the University of Queensland, graduated in 98, and then did my sports physio masters um, in Melbourne. Um, but my, I suppose, as a physio, I, I'm I'm a okay manual therapist, but it's not something that I'm particularly gifted in. You know, some people have got really amazing hands. Um, I'm not one of those people. My my background was always in the the sports science and, and strength and conditioning realm of of um, of rehab, I suppose. Um, so, uh, you know, I I've always gone down the the route of of strength work and um, I, I did my masters in in S and C. You know, I'd got all my badges in S and C, etc., etc., etc. So um, I've always been a, a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach alongside my physio, um, and you know, and that's probably the where I see real benefit in in, in rehab and, and physio anyway. And that's probably the the background to you know both books, I suppose. Is there that's much more of an integration between sports medicine. And sports science. Mm-hmm. I see. It's a lot. I see a lot of physios now going down the kind of traditional um, physio undergrad and then jumping onto an SNC masters. So, like you say, people obviously um, valuing that side of things as as a as a physiotherapist, you know, rather than going down the pure kind of more traditional physio route, maybe. Yeah, and it's good. It's but it's it's kind of a bit of a reverse of what used to happen what what still does happen you know people people do a sports science degree and then move into physio or sports medicine um and and people are doing the opposite as well now which is good because um really that's that's what rehab and that's what performance actually is 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 actually understanding all aspects of the of the the athlete of the individual um rather than being totally compartmentalized you know a lot of physios well, certainly at my physio school, which was a really good one, you know, we, we didn't get taught anything about exercise prescription really. So um, you, you really do need a, a much greater depth of knowledge in that area in the same way that um, people we, that have got a strength background actually, you know, if they're going to work with uh, people that have got injuries, you know, as we all do, they need a much better grounding in pathology as well. So um, it, it makes sense that people are trying to cross over much more frequently now than what they did in the past. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So just moving on to the um, 
onto the book itself. Well, look, actually, let's touch on uh, high performance training for sports. So obviously, 18 months ago, we spoke just after it had come out, I think, uh, maybe a little bit after it had come out, actually. So what, what was the... What was the kind of aftermath of that for you personally? And I know we spoke a little bit before, but just obviously stick this on air. Um, how the the second book came about? Yeah, um, look, I, I'm I'm really I'm really proud of both books. Um, uh, you know, it's always nice to have something on your bookshelf um, at your parents' place that they they're really proud of and and the like. So you know, just even. Even getting them published was was really good, but for me, the the most important thing was actually the the content of them and and actually being able to corral all the you know all the the expert authors that we did and be able to put that into a a format like we have was was a I actually think it's quite a big achievement, you know. And what's um uh, what's really heartening is because you you don't go into these things to make any sort of money whatsoever, you know. It's <laughs> The, the amount of remuneration that I've got out of out of high performance training for sports um, is so far below the minimum wage; it's almost illegal. But <laughs> but actually, um, um, the the really heartening thing for me is is just the response that we've had. People really like the book, you know. And um, if we can um, if we can improve the quality of coaching and the quality of rehab and the quality of sports science through through our work you know that's that's what we want to do that's that means it's been successful um and you know people people really do like high performance training for sports which is great you know um we're we're really humbled by the the messages like i got a, a message today from um from someone in edinburgh you know i get i get several messages every single day about people that really that really like the book um, and you know stories of how much it's changed the training and the training of their athletes and stuff. So, you know, if that's that's probably the biggest measure of success for me is as as that people actually find it useful. Um, as for the second part of the question, how did this one come about? Well, actually, this one was the first one, believe it or not. So myself and um, my good my good mate Dan Lewenden, we did our strength and conditioning masters together, and we we worked at. Um, in rugby together, uh, he worked at Northampton. I worked at Saracens, and we sort of knew each other through that. Um, and we shared similar backgrounds in both rehab and, and strength and the like. And it was really, really clear to us that you know what, there's a lot of strength and conditioning books out there that have got no concept about injuries, and there's a lot of sports medicine books that have got absolutely no idea about performance training. So that's not the model that we we like. We like something which is much more integrated and so we, we set about formulating sports injury prevention and rehab. Um, and then so we went down and we ended up by choosing Routledge as the, as the publisher um, and then Human Kinetics came to us and said, oh, look, we, we'd really like you to do a, a book for us, which was High Performance Training for Sports. So High Performance Training for Sports obviously came out first, um, but it was the second one to get commissioned. Um, sports Injury Prevention and Rehab is the one that we've, we've just published, but that, that started, is that process started about four years ago. 
um, and it was born out of the, born out of the ambition to have a, a much more cohesive, integrated text, which is not a sports medicine book. It's not a sports science book. It is a performance rehab book. So that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so um, I want to kind of use your chapters as a bit of a kind of structure for the little the chat we're going to have. But how do you kind of put place yourself and your chapters in with the whole kind of um, structure of the book? Do you just plug yourself in where you think your kind of, um, I don't know, uh, attributes fit? Or do you just work around everyone else? Or how does that work? Um, Yeah, it's kind of the areas that I've got a particular interest in, I suppose. Um, Because you've got first dibs, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, look, I, I'd like to think that my my fingerprint is over every chapter because ultimately I, I read every chapter and I edit every chapter, um, you know, probably up to 15 times in some cases. Um, and, you know, you, you want to... You want to keep the contributor's voice in there, but you also need it to be cohesive um, throughout the entire book. Um, and so what, what we ended up by doing is going, well, what are the, what are the topics that we want covered? You know, and we, we started out with the, the broad sections, um, and, and that might be the, the philosophical ones to start with, and then we go into a bit more of the, um, the body parts and then the, then the biomechanics and then the, the training athlete. And then you go, well, if I was reading this book, um, what is it that I'd want to know? We want it to be, you know, pretty all-encompassing. So um, how do we make it a, almost a one-stop shop? And so that's how you come up with the topics. And then from there you go, well, well who are the best people in the world to, to write for these these particular areas? And, you know, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, if we're going to write about um, elbows and and throwing injuries. We go and speak to someone in baseball. So we go and speak to the the best people in baseball, Adam Reinold and uh, sorry, Mike Reinold and and Adam Molston. And um, you know they believe in the concept as well. And then they go and write that that um, that chapter. Um, but there are there are topics in there which uh, you know I've got a bit of experience with, and I reckon I can. I can contribute it to the book in that way. So you you do that. But the, I think the, the real strength of the book is that a, a lot of books are just written from one person. Um, and no one in the world that can can claim to be the world expert in every single area. It's just, it's just not possible. Um, and it's, it's kind of egotistical in a way as well. So um, what we did was we were humble enough to say, well, you know, let's get the very best people. It's not going to be it's not going to be me necessarily in every area. It's not going to be Dan in every area. Who is the best person to write about um, run mechanics? Okay, Franz Bosch. Well, let's go and speak to Franz again and see if he'll write a chapter for us. And bang, yes, he yes he will, and he's got some great stuff to to contribute. So that's that's where we go to with that, and that's that's kind of the evolution of. Of a of a book like ours. Oh, interesting. Um, so I just want to move on to the chapters that, that you wrote. Um, so firstly, um, obviously I haven't I haven't read the book. I ain't, I ain't got the book yet. But just looking at the um, the contents page and the on the Routledge website, I just pick these these out, and it's the injury risk profile process, which just by the just by that kind of title can kind of intrigue me. And I just want you to give us a little bit of um, background on why. 
that's important and why you thought obviously you were the you were the guy to to fit the bill and what what that chapter what that chapter includes um the, the injury risk profiling or screening is something that is done really poorly in sport. So, you know, I remember when I first started, you'd have this enormous sheet of paper and you get a player in and you'd have to, you know, look at range of motion of every single joint in the body and then you look at muscle strength, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you end up by having this enormous amount of data on a on a player, most of which is, you know, largely irrelevant. And and actually, um, you know, you look at muscle strength and it would just be an isometric hold or something. So this is back in the day, Rob. Um, and, you know, really do we need to be looking at, at isometric, eccentric, concentric, at what part of range, you know, um, or do we do it isolated, do we do it as a compound movement, all these sorts of things. So, you know, essentially there are an infinite number of possibilities of things that you you could and and, um, and, and possibly should be testing on a, on a particular athlete. But that just, it's, it's not supported by science. It's not supported by the evidence. Um, it's poorly targeted, um, and there must be a better way. So, um, I thought well, I've always been a big fan of, of looking outside of what we do in sport to help us in sport. So I thought, well, who is it that uh, screens better and more frequently than we do in sport? Um, and I came up in, in my own head. Um, with UK border agencies because they screen, you know, millions of people every single year coming into into the UK and how is it that they, broadly speaking, can, you know, limit the amount of terrorists coming in, limit the number of Australians with dodgy visas coming in, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Not mentioning uh, names. <laughs> <laughs> how is it that they can do that so successfully? Um, without obviously doing a cavity search of every single person that comes through through Heathrow. Um, so I actually spent a bit of time investigating what they do and spending a bit of time with them. Um, and, and that informed my screening process. So basically what we've done is we've been able to go from all the injuries that could possibly happen with an athlete to the ones that are most likely to happen. So you, you first of all, you generate the generic warning index, then the specific warning index, and then you look at, at, at movement um, movement efficiency, uh, movement skills on top of that. And that basically goes, you know, it cuts down from infinite number of injuries to the injuries that are most likely to happen. And that way you can much more effectively and efficiently target your screening. You, you can't prevent every single injury. We know that. But by, by really honing your screening process down into the six or seven injuries that are most likely to occur for that individual, we, we've found a, a huge improvement in our screening process. Um, and that's basically what we wanted to share in that um in that chapter mm -hmm. so within that chapter does that then take take it on what you actually do with that screen or is that yeah is that, it does is that, okay 
it does, but it's it's much more of a philosophical side of things. So we go into how to generate a generic warning index, how to generate a specific warning index, etc. Because the whole point of the screening is that it should be individualised, because your injury risk profile is going to be different to mine. So therefore, we can't have the same screen. There will be elements that are very similar. But it, what I've tried to do is actually take the reader on a journey about how to do that in a time-efficient and effective manner for them, for their group of individuals that they work with. Mm-hmm. So without obviously um, killing it too much for, for the chapter itself, but how are you going around individualising that screening process? Well, a lot, you know, you need to do your background reading. So, what um, you know, you have a look at your... Um, your sport. So let's just take um, rugby union, for example. So we can look through the epidemiology and go, right, well, what are the injuries that are most likely to happen in, in rugby? Okay, and so we know that that um, uh, shoulder injuries, neck injuries, concussion, these sorts of things always rate as the, the highest things, okay? But then you go, well, in the research, that's mostly been done, let's say, for argument's sake, in elite populations, and you're looking in um, in a, a youth setup. So you need to then hone that down. Well, what are the injuries most likely to happen in the youth setup? Okay, so that, that might be a slightly different injury risk profile. And then you go, right, well, clearly the injuries that are sustained by a prop are going to be slightly different to those sustained by an outside back. So you're starting to to filter your, your screening process by position. And then you go, well, um, we know that the biggest risk factor for a hamstring injury is a previous hamstring injury. So um, if someone in, the, in your research on that individual has had a previous hamstring injury, you need to spend a bit more time looking at that specific injury with that specific individual um so you know you're starting to titrate your screening process on the basis of what we know from the research is most likely to occur in that that not just that sport but that population and that position and then you go so that's the generic warning index and then the specific warning index relates to that individual where you so you've got to do your your homework on the individual so you go, right, well, what injuries have you had? You know, what's your age group? You know, we know that tendinopathies are more likely to occur um, in the slightly older age group. So you might be more interested in looking at a tendinopathy screening for, you know, a, a 32-year-old athlete as you might, uh, you know, more interested in that than you would be in a, a 22-year-old athlete, for example. So... Um, that's not to say that a 22-year-old athlete can't get a tendon problem, but what you're trying to do is titrate it to the areas of highest risk, and that's what we go to in the in the chapter. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I, just on that, and it seems kind of a um, an obvious kind of uh, bottleneck into into what I'm going to say, but I, I listened to a, a podcast recently with um, Charlie Weingroff and uh, yep. and Keir Wenham Flat discussing the the FMS at at length and got very heated at times. Um, what's your What's your take on that? I mean, I know it, we could probably could go. You, you could probably go half an hour on that itself. But just in a in a kind of summary, what What's your take on that and how it fits into what you've just been talking about there? 
on the FMS. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I really, really admire the ambition of the FMS, and I think it's it has pushed our profession forward because it was the first real um, uh, tool that was adopted by thousands of people to uh, examine movement, you know, and and that's 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 a really important step, and it, and it tried to be tried to break down movement into some core elements. So I I think we've got our profession have got a a huge debt of gratitude to to Gray and to Lee, both incidentally who have contributed to to um, this book here. Um, I I think, however, that it's not a it's not a perfect screen for and um, a specific population that you might have. So uh, there are elements of it that I use with our uh, group in the AFL, but I don't use the FMS as a as a tool by itself, but there are elements yeah. that I use of it. So I, I don't think it's perfect, but it is definitely a step in the right direction. And the whole ambition behind the FMS is not to say, you, you must do this. It is to have a... It's, it's a screen. A screen is something to filter, um, which helps us get more strategic, more targeted with an assessment. So, um, look, I think, it's, I think it's a really good resource, but it, it needs adapting for an individual or a, a, you know, a, a particular population that you work with. No, cool. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't trying to stitch you up there. By the way, I know. I know them guys were. Uh, them guys were contributors to the book. So no, that's that's cool. That's cool. Um, so just wanted to move on to um, another chapter that that you um, you produced in the book, and that was the athletic foot and ankle. So I mean, we we discussed a little bit about around this area with uh, JB Marin and James Wilde, who we've had on the podcast recently. So it'd be interesting to just to get a bit of an overview of that chapter. Um, and what's included in it, and how you're kind of giving recommendations for for that for that area? Well, a lot of um, sports medicine textbooks will look at the foot and ankle by a specific injury that might occur. So it might be um, a a lateral ankle sprain or a um, you know a syndesmotic injury or a you know, turf toe or, or whatever and, and, and be really specific about a structure that has been injured, whereas what we try to do with all of the region parts of the, the, the book, so whether it's foot and ankle or, or shoulder or lumbar spine or whatever, was to talk about the competencies that the foot and ankle should be able to have. So we... Dan and I went right back to basics and we, we looked at the way the foot and ankle should move in athletic function. And the foot and ankle is obviously pretty important because in most sports, um, it is the first thing that hits the ground. You know, we, you know, even in, even in swimming, you know, you need a good um, foot and ankle function to be able to, to push off the wall and off the starting blocks. And, you know, you could probably argue that, um, the only thing, the only sports that it's not really used a lot of, uh, used a lot in uh, stationary sports such as archery or, or wheelchair sports. So um, in the vast majority of sports that are played around the world, the 
foot and ankle is an absolutely critical part of athletic function. Um, and, and the way the foot and ankle works primarily is to, to be a spring-like lever and a mobile adapter. So it, it needs to be able to be rigid enough to be able to propel the body forward, and, but it also needs to be mobile and flexible enough to, to adapt to changing terrain and changes of direction and those sorts of things. Um, when you, irrespective of the particular injury that you have, whether it's to your big toe, your little toe, your fifth metatarsal or your, um, or your, your um, talocrural joint, you need to be able to perform all those tasks of having a stable, stable um, um, lever and a, a mobile adapter. Um, and so they're, they're the areas that we, we really examine in detail in, in the book. And then we, we discuss how to, to rehab those, those accordingly. So, um, you know, you may have an injury to one of your three rockers when we, we talk about the three rockers in, in the book, um, you know, and that, and that might be your plantar fascia or your big toe or those sorts of things which are going to affect your your spring-like lever. So we talk about how to rehab a spring um, and then – but equally you might have something which is affecting your, your lateral ankle, like an ankle sprain, which um, limits your ability to be a mobile adapter. So we talk about how to be a mobile adapter or how to rehab a mobile adapter, whereas most – sports injury textbooks will just say stand on a wobble board and do some calf raises. So we've tried to be a little bit more strategic and, and um, targeted with our, with our message there. Cool. Um, just a couple of things that I'm just scribbling down as we, as we speak there. Um, one thing that, that came up uh, in a previous podcast again, um, I'm not just plugging previous podcasts all the time, by the way, um, was, was, the, um, was pressure mapping. Uh, with yep. with Bruce Williams um, over in over in the United States, is that something that you've um, you've used with your with your guys um, over the years? Uh, we haven't haven't a lot. Um, if I'm if I'm completely honest, um, we've got a terrific podiatrist that we do use at the at the footy club, and so we whilst we don't use pressure pressure mapping, we we use. We do a lot of gait analysis, which is, is something pretty similar. We're trying to look at where, you know, how people load their their foot and therefore by extension their entire body. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we talk about that in, in the book as well, and that's sort of the gait analysis part of it. Um, but specific pressure mapping we don't do a lot of. Mm-hmm. So, so what, tool, what tools are you using for the, for the gait analysis video and – um, opt to jump yeah, or something so, like that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll use high speed video so we can really, really slow it down and, and have a really good indication of, of how people load their load their lower body. Um, and but we also use a lot of force plates and and the wood way as well. So like a, a force plate um, uh, treadmill. So we can see the differences in flight time, the differences in ground contact time between the two limbs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, all, all that together gives a, a holistic view of where someone's at um, rather than just a, a static, oh, well, how well can you stand on one leg type analysis. <laughs> 
No, that's cool. Um, I'm just conscious of time. I don't want to keep you too long, obviously, over the uh, over the festive period. But um, I just want to touch on the uh, the third chapter that, or the third of the. Have you done four chapters? Did you did you do four in the book? Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. So just just any, one anyway, which was the pain and performance. Yeah. Which obviously, like I said again, I haven't read the book, but that kind of stood out to me to 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 some for something to ask you about and and that kind of area um and why you thought it was important and what you what you detail in that chapter um the the background to it is that dave butler who i co-authored it with is is one of the smartest people i've ever had the pleasure of working with and he is a um an expert like a world 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 leader in in pain sciences and when i did my masters i was lucky enough to to be mentored by him and it completely, completely, completely changed the way I manage injury um, because it opened my eyes to the fact that pain is an output rather than an input. So a lot of us think that when you bang your hand, you get pain messages from your hand up to your brain, whereas actually what happens is you, you bang your hand, messages about pressure and those sorts of things go up to your brain, then your brain says, you know what, we probably should take that hand away or we should tell you to get help or to, you know, change your behaviour. So we're going to give you pain as that stimulus. So pain is the output. Um, and pain can be modulated by a number of things. It can be modulated by, by fear, can be modulated by past experiences, etc. So... For example, so let's just say that I've sprained my ankle and it is the day before a, a big game for us. Um, and so I'm more likely to have a lot more pain because my brain's going to go, shit, you know, we, we really need to get some help here. We really need to get this checked out. We need to do something because the game is so important to us. So it's going to give me a lot more pain um, to make my response much more urgent. Does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely. So, um, so pain is the output that is modulated by more than just the amount of damage that you have. And in some cases, you, you may not have any damage, but you get a lot of pain. You know, we've all, and vice versa. So, you know, you will have had the experience where you, you might be in the shower and you go, shit, how did I get that bruise on my leg? Um, you know, but what's happened is, the, the input there's clearly been tissue damage because that's why you've got a bruise but the information goes up to your brain your brain goes rob you know what you just walked into the the side of the the coffee table i don't need you to change your behavior i don't need you to get help um I, i'm not going to bother you with, with pain um so you know there's there's clearly tissue damage but there's not been a pain response whereas you also have the the opposite where you could have a um, a little paper cut that doesn't hurt until you see the blood and you get this like, a pain which is completely disproportionate to the amount of tissue damage that you've had. Um, so the, the, the amount of pain you have is a correlate of the amount of threat that your brain perceives your body to be under. So let me just explain that again. The, the amount of pain you have is not necessarily 
a direct proportion of the amount of tissue damage you have. It is the amount of threat that your brain thinks your body is under. Mm-hmm. I understand. So that little kids, if they if they fall over and everyone says, "Oh, you're okay, you're okay," they get up and they're okay. Whereas if you left them to it, if you left them to it, they'd be crying their eyes out because they think the world's just ended. It is, you know, that's a fantastic example, and it's the reason why one of the best, most highly researched, evidence-based management processes for low back pain is movement and reassurance. You know, it's not doing um, mobilizations of your fourth lumbar vertebrae. (laughs) Um, But it's also the reason why physio and, you know, all the manual therapies are so helpful in many cases is because your brain goes, well, I'm taking the appro- I'm taking the appropriate steps to get my my body better. <laughs> yeah, um, interesting. It's also the reason why physios and osteopaths and, and doctors and people can make things a lot worse by saying, by having a look at a scan and going, my God, how is it that you're even standing up? You should never bend and touch your toes because your your disc could explode. You know, that's that is threat um, language and that makes things worse. So as a clinician, as a as a therapist, as a strength coach, the words that we use make so much of a difference to whether someone's going to get better or not. And that's why. Um, that pain and performance chapter is so critical in that entire book. So is, is that is that the main uh, way that your kind of practice has changed based on this this change of thinking with regards to pain? How you yeah, how, how you actually converse that with with the athlete? It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, the the knowledge of what pain actually is. So our, our our the common thought about what pain is as an input comes from the the seventeenth century from a from a philosopher called Rene Descartes, um, which is basically where your brain and your body is is can completely separate. And it's called a um, called a Cartesian dualism. And um, but what we now know is that that they're not separate, um, and that everything works together and and the way we need to manage injuries needs to be reflective of that. Um, you know, and that's not just sort of some psycho babble or, or <laughs> you know, um, kumbaya sort of philosophy. They, this is actually hardcore neuroscience that, that Dave and I try and distill into, into, um, uh, into our chapter because the way we treat pain is still in sport is still, you know, antiquated. You know, it hurts here, therefore I need to rub here. Or, um, you know, I'm ready to return to sport when the pain has gone, you know, which it, which is just not in keeping with, with a modern view of what pain actually is. So we've, we've tried to bring um, pain management and injury management in sport into the 21st century with this chapter. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sounds sounds really really interesting. Um, so, the most important thing, I suppose, um, is where can people buy the book? 
Um, usual outlets, you know, Amazon and okay. um, uh, the Routledge site is is really good. So it will come online with iBooks at the beginning of, of 2016. Um, I'm getting messages from all over the place saying people have bought it already, which is great. Um, so, you know, it's available in both in, in both physical and, and electronic versions. Um, Amazon is often the cheapest, and but all, all, book, all big bookstores will, will stock it. Cool. Cool. So, so where can people keep in touch? I know we went through this before. Where can people keep in touch with what you've going on book-wise and just generally? Um, look, I'm not a massive social media dude. I don't have a website or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I contribute to Twitter where I can. I think Twitter is actually a, it's a really nice environment to be able to share, um, share your knowledge and interesting things that, that people do. And I think it's, it's, it's a nice little community for us in, in performance. So I try and put some, some things on there, um, each week. So that, that's, that's a way that people can, can interact. And then, um, uh, you know, and, and people can email me as well at um, uh, david.joyce at gwsgiants.com.au and, and, you know, little things like the, the, the podcast that you do, Rob, and they're, they're good ways. And then what we'll probably start to do in the, in the new year as well is start to um, really amp up our, um, our, our uh, APU site at the, at the Giants, um, which is at giants underscore APU, which is our athletic performance unit at the Giants, and we'll give insights into what we do um, as an athletic performance unit at, at GWS. So they're, they're probably the best ways to, to do it at the moment, and then um, I'll keep people informed if, if there are developments in what, what I want to do in terms of matches uh, and courses and those sorts of things which are, are planned for this year. Cool. You're a busy guy. Very busy guy. Try to but, be. Try to be. <laughs> so I'll put I'll put the um, the links on the site so people can uh, be lazy and just jump on there and get and, and click straight <laughs> click straight through. Um, but yeah, I um, I really appreciate your time. I know it's uh, it's a busy time of year um, with the family and things and and the uh, especially with the new engagement. It's uh, it's absolutely kicking off over there. So um, so yeah, thanks very much for your time, uh, and we'll keep in touch. And I'll get the book, and uh, and we'll speak soon. Good man, Rob, and 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 thanks for thanks for having me on, and and for 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 chatting about this. But um, but also thanks for your podcast. And I know most people say it when they get on, but it is it's been. It, it, I I don't get the chance to listen to too many podcasts, but this is one of the ones that I that I, like, that I really look forward to whenever whenever a new one comes out. So. Um, you know, thanks for all you do for our profession. Brilliant. Thanks for that, mate. Appreciate that. Cool. And I'll um I'll speak to you soon. Good man, Rob. Thanks all a right, lot. Pal. See you, mate. Bye bye. Cheers, bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 66 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with David. Got lots of great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, uh, as well as a, a webinar which is going to be released and going to go live at the end of February, so keep an eye out for that. Just one last thing, massive thanks to both Vald Performance and Train With Push for sponsoring the podcast today. So don't forget the Nordboard is going to be released on the 15th of January, so if you are interested, 
get over to wildperformance.com and drop them an email. Thanks again for listening and I will speak to you in episode 67.